For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And in this latest readout video from our free Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, I look forward with a strange combination of boredom and dread to the upcoming COP28 Climate Gab Fest starting this November 30th. I also look forward to it with a weird mix of amusement and relief, because among some climate alarmists, reality does seem to be starting to set in. A quarter century ago, they could rant, rave, and visualize all they wanted about the coming apocalypse in distant 2030 or so. But now they have to deliver an apocalypse and a solution. The former seems to be giving them no problem, rhetorically at least, including now that we live not in the time of global boiling, that was quick, but in the flame age. However, the latter is proving more difficult. Indeed, it seems as though the much-hyped COP27 just fizzled out, and yet, believe it or not, COP28 is going to start in the United Arab Emirates because it's nice and warm there even in winter, and uh, warmth is a deadly threat. Also, we've jeered about this one before, you know, sure, have a meeting in Kyoto, go to Rio, even Paris. Do COP1, 2, 3, 4, even 5. But 28? Really? It's not just that everything that could have been said has been said, it's that anyone who could possibly have said it already has, and they're running out of empty metaphors to keep the talk going. Actually, according to Sultan Ahmed al-Jaber, who's the president of COP28, the conference, quote, is a prime opportunity to rethink, reboot, and refocus the climate agenda, end quote. Okay, we'll bite. Why does it need rethinking, rebooting, and refocusing? And if you know it does, why didn't you do it before this meeting so that the actual sessions in the UAE could achieve something useful? Uh, that is, uh, well, you see, uh... In the newsletter, we also note that climate change is very trendy. Which isn't news, and we don't bring it up to say that people who link their favorite cause toward are cynical. They may just be alert to opportunities and prone to a herd mentality. Rather, we would bring it up to say, Sometimes, when people do the right thing, for the wrong reason, in this world, it's good. For instance, when we read that Montreal aims to become a sponge city in order, quote, to respond to the climate crisis, end quote, we say, we'll take the action even if the rationale is fatuous. Because, as we've explained, the increasing frequency and severity of urban flooding due to poor municipal planning really is an issue, even if the connection with climate is spurious. It's actually remarkable the degree to which cities have been built as if the purpose was to cause destructive floods. Here we go again with the law of unintended consequences, not a conspiracy to get water in your basement. But you look at cities, typically they're located in river valleys or they're on floodplains, and you just need to walk down a street or through a parking lot or look up at the roofs of buildings to see that almost no opportunity has been missed to use modern construction materials to eliminate porosity and absorption. Why, to take a very simple example, aren't those concrete tree boxes always bottomless? Why don't parking lots use that hexagonal interlocking cement with soil in the gaps? Or at least have bottomless planters or sign boxes in between the rows of cars? Now. If you're wondering how it helps to build a city on a sponge or to make a sidewalk out of one, and are concerned that the potential for twisted ankles and shredded sponges looms large, don't worry. That term is just trendy urban planning speak for, gosh, imagine that, quote, green spaces that naturally absorb excess rainfall instead of draining the water directly into neighborhood sewers, end quote. Sounds like one of them newfangled parks to us, or 
something you just didn't get around to paving. Or even, dare we say it, a meadow, a more holistic garden, or a verge between roads that isn't mowed and fertilized in a desperate quest to create a golf green or a billiard table instead of some messy, annoying nature with all those vexing butterflies and bees and crickets destined not for your stomach, but some birds. So, sponge cities actually are good, even if some of the reasons given for them are unconvincing, and we'll take it. Oh, speaking of COP28, if you go to the venue website, it offers you a switch to low carbon version, end quote. And if you do, it then lets you, quote, switch back to full experience, end quote, which is pretty much a metaphor for 30 years of climate policy. <clears throat> Even when it comes to a website, the low carbon version isn't actually better as we were promised. Instead, it's a cut back, slightly squalid and depressing place that you sure wouldn't want to get stuck in. And now, a word from our sponsor. And yes, again, that's you. All the people out there who are already backing our work and all the people who are subscribing, more than 84,000 of you on YouTube alone, where we've had almost 10 million views. But we need to keep up the momentum. And that's why I interrupt to pass the hat to those of you who aren't already backers and say, please make a pledge one time a monthly, $3, $5, $10, whatever you can afford so we can continue to push back against the climate cult and win this battle. And now, back to me. And speaking of amusement, we note that there's a cargo ship lugging coal from Vancouver to Asia that's called the MV Climate Justice, end quote. It seems that marketing isn't just for breakfast cereal anymore. Indeed, Canadian MPs are now investigating a federal government foundation called Sustainable Development Technology Canada for so-called greenwashing. It seems that governments are often no more honest than they are competent. And they sometimes engage in devious marketing. In the newsletter, we also come back to New York Times columnist David Gellies, who is peddling, quote, the Pope's warning to a warming world, end quote. See, apparently it's okay that Francis is not a climate scientist, and neither is the columnist, who has a MA in journalism and a BA in philosophy, provided he, quote, names and shames the countries and industries he sees as bad actors and makes an urgent plea for collective action, end quote. Moreover, Apparently, quote, in clear, precise language, he identifies the burning of fossil fuels as the primary driver of climate change, end quote. So, the Pope knows all about that, whereas if he drones on about some irrelevancy like sexual morality or the nature of God, they chewed him out as some know-nothing fuddy-duddy in a weird hat. Also, on the subject of reality-biting climate alarmism, we bring you Roger Pilkey Jr.'s argument that, quote, the public is okay, it's us scientists who are the problem, end quote, because of a new survey that found that, of all things, the more politicized the scientific field becomes, the less people trust its supposedly authoritative and Olympian pronouncements. As Pilkey Jr. says, quote, typically, the idea of a crisis of public trust in science is quickly accompanied by a diagnosis, from us scientists, of course, that identifies the crisis as a failure of the public, e.g. in being easily duped by moneyed interests or evil politicians, and simply not smart enough to know enough to come to the proper views, end quote. But he suggests instead that, quote, trust in science, including scientists and scientific institutions, is placed at risk when leading scientists and institutions become politically active in ways that diverge from the values and preferences of the broader public, end quote. So, all you scientists who say, please stop talking down to us, or yelling at us, and admit the real complexities and uncertainties of the field in which you work. I know it sounds crazy, but it just might work. 
Now, something else that sounds crazy, and this time it is, is the revealing recurring obsession among climate alarmists with making us eat bugs. And it can't be helping them win friends and influence people, even if they insist that insects are secretly better tasting and more wholesome than what we currently enjoy. But it does speak to two recurring features of radical thought that are by no means confined to this area, but are certainly on conspicuous display in it. The first is a conviction that ordinary people are doing everything wrong and it's causing disaster, and a secondly, a certainty that the radicals can redesign everything and get it better than tradition, the marketplace, or even nature ever managed. So, when we get an item that says, quote, superfood-based beanless coffee could slash emissions and water use by 94%, end quote, it reminds us once again that climate alarmists are perfectly sincere, both in their conviction that we ordinary humans are wrecking the earth, and that to stop it, they have to make us give up our normal lifestyles cars, homes, cities, and even our cup of morning coffee. In the newsletter, we also complained that the Canadian press breathes a huge sigh of relief that, quote, miracle water year in California, rain, snow put state's reservoirs at 128% of historical average, end quote. Why do we complain? About the story or the event? Well, it's not about the event. It's about the story. Because apparently, after years of what we were told was climate change-driven drought and some climate change-driven flooding, they now say the Golden State got, of all things, some good weather. Just at random, of course. Not due to global warming or boiling, climate change or breakdown, or, well, anything really. How strange. Until you remember that in the wacky world of climate science and climate reporting, all effects of climate change are bad, and everything bad is an effect of climate change. This being good, couldn't possibly have been connected with it in any way. Also, in case you missed it, September was the end of the world, or very nearly. Quote, September sizzled to records and was so much warmer than average that scientists call it mind-blowing, end quote, according to the Globe and Mail. The Daily Telegraph shrilled, quote, gobsmackingly bananas, scientists shocked by September's record-breaking heat, record-high September temperatures are beyond belief, say scientists, end quote. And NBC howled via email that, quote, the weather in September was so gobsmackingly bananas that even scientists are spooked, end quote. Now, this kind of story might lead the unwary to think that NBC and other mainstream outlets haven't been telling us that scientists were in a panic over climate for at least 20 years now. But never mind, this time for sure. And how bad is it? Well, it's completely terrible, as always. And everybody was on it in the herd of independent minds. The actual NBC News story starts, quote, there are hot summers, and then there's the summer of 2023, end quote. It's like unprecedented, man. The actual statistic comes from Copernicus, also known as the European Space Agency's Copernicus Climate Change Service, so clearly it's entirely dispassionate and disinterested. And the Globe story says, quote, The hot temperatures stretched across the globe, but they were chiefly driven by persistent and unusual warmth in the world's oceans, which didn't cool off as much in September as normal and have been record hot since spring, said Copernicus director Carlo Buontempo, end quote. Interesting. The oceans. Because in the world of climate alarmism, if the oceans are hot, it must be the atmosphere that heated them, because the whole greenhouse effect depends on warming in the atmosphere, right? And so the atmosphere heated the oceans, and then the oceans heated the atmosphere in a kind of weird circular process. We weren't supposed to think about that, 
nor were we meant to get distracted by the possibility that maybe ocean temperature is due to cycles lasting centuries. The Guardian almost did get distracted, though. In an unguarded moment, it wrote, quote, Mika Rantanen, climate researcher at the Finnish Meteorological Institute, said, I'm still struggling to comprehend how a single year can jump so much compared to previous years, end quote. And indeed, in almost any other scientific field, the initial reaction would be to wonder if the discontinuity weren't due either to some flaw in the data or to some external shock. And that's particularly relevant here because global warming is meant to have a more or less linear relationship to atmospheric CO2. So as atmospheric CO2 goes up, the temperature should go up on a smooth curve. It shouldn't leap about. If it does, and you were the kind of scientist who looks for explanations for discontinuities in discontinuous events, an obvious candidate would be the most powerful volcanic eruption in the modern instrument era. That's the Hunga Tonga Hunga Harapai volcano, which, unlike most such eruptions, which lower the temperature because they shoot cooling aerosols into the air, took place underwater. So instead it blasted vast amounts of climate warming water vapor skywards. Yes, that's right, climate warming water vapor. This is just the sort of one-off that might produce a dramatic discontinuity, but apparently in climate science, you can't say that kind of thing. We say it anyway. In the newsletter, we also say that the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, that's WACE for people who like acronyms, especially pronounceable ones, is the big one that people worry about because, as we explained in our video on the sea level scare, if it melts and the land-based ice gets into the ocean, the sea level really will rise, enough to flood the oceanfront mansions of all those millionaire climate activists. And yes, a recent study by a team of scientists led by Ryan Venturelli of the Colorado School of Mines has confirmed that such melting can occur and can happen rapidly once it starts. But how did they find out? Well, they trudged 150 kilometers inland in Antarctica and then drilled down through a kilometer of ice to find, of all things, a lake. Now, the really big surprise isn't that you could have a lake down there, since scientists already knew there were about 650 of these under-ice lakes in Antarctica. It's that their study showed that the waste had melted to some extent as much as 6,000 years ago during the mid-Holocene climate optimum. Yep, one of those natural warm episodes in the past that the IPCC keeps trying to erase, but which scientists keep finding evidence for in the darndest places. We also note a new paper by Italian climate scientist Nicola Scafetta, published in Geoscience Frontiers, that has reopened the whole discussion about the sun's role in climate change. Or perhaps we should say it's kept it open, despite the alarmists' efforts to hush the matter up. Because Scafetta begins by discussing the Acrim PMOD controversy about solar activity, about which we also made a video. See, the IPCC insists on using a reconstruction of the sun's activity over the past 150 years that it implies that it has changed very little, so the sun can't explain global warming. But other solar reconstructions show that its output has increased a lot to, by today compared to the early 1800s, which, if it's true, would mean that the sun might be responsible for much of the warming, meaning other things have to be responsible for less of it. And Scafetta presents a statistical analysis that looks at what the various alternative solar reconstructions imply about the role of CO2 in global warming. And, despite all the chatter about settled science, he also asks whether we even understand the ways in which the sun interacts with the climate. However it happens, once he allows for indirect solar effects in his model, the role of the sun gets much bigger, and that of course means that the role of CO2 gets much smaller. ECS is lower than the estimates, 
The crisis is not caused by human beings, if there even is one. So much for drastic policy action. Finally, from the CO2Science.org archive, we look at a paper that compares the climate alarmist claim that global warming should make extreme weather events such as drought more frequent and severe against the actual thousand-year history of the eastern Tibetan plateau. And how strange. The study finds a lot of natural variability, but nothing unusual in the last supposedly warming ravaged hundred years. And, for good measure, it finds that the thing that does seem to influence droughts and floods significantly is, of all things, solar activity. It's that blasted, big, hot, yellow thing in the sky again. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I can't wait not to listen to them drone on at COP28.